Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides a opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is a Consumer VC podcast where we discuss venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox, as well as a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or non-accredited, Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments, including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Thank you, Alex Pattis, for the intro to our guest today, Kyle Cook. Kyle is the founder and CEO of Loverboy. Loverboy is a better-for-you alcohol beverage brand that produces sparkling iced teas, spritzes, and RTD cocktails. Kyle is also one of the stars and one of the creators of the reality show Summer House, which I must admit is how I found out about the brand and now has sold over $38 million worth of products. We discuss Kyle's entrepreneurial journey, how he founded several businesses, why ultimately Loverboy worked and how he was able to leverage Summer House the show, and how he got into retail and also approached new flavors and much, much, much more. This is a really fun one. Without further ado, here's Kyle. Kyle, thanks for joining me here today. How are you? Excellent. You caught me mid-sip. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you, you uh, taking the time. Thank you. No, thank you. I know it was a couple months in the making, but super excited. And I am now a regular listener um, oh, cool. as I kind of uh, got, got more and more familiar with the pod. So I think you're putting a valuable service out there. That's really kind. Really kind. Thanks so much for listening. 
Um, let's start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? Was was did you always want to be entrepreneurial? Were you were you entrepreneurial growing up? Yeah, I think you know, aside from like the the cliche lemonade stands and magic shows, and however I made my money early on, some landscaping. Um, I think it really the light bulb really went off when I was selling Cutco, the the cutlery that they you know it's kind of like door to door. I was just like, holy crap, you know, I just sold $10,000 worth of knives in a week. I'm a salesman. What I really realized is I was actually just an entrepreneur and I just loved kind of being in, you know, um, in control of of my own destiny. So throughout college, I ran a painting franchise, you know, it was a a contracting company um, that was part of a, you know, a bigger um, franchise network and, uh, you know, ran my own business. And, um, you know, I, I thought I wanted to join the, join the corporate world because my mom was like, you're not going to paint homes the rest of your life, right? Like, that's not, not why you went to college. And I joined, you know, I, I went to work for like a Fortune 100 and quickly like became their rookie of the year and promptly quit. And I've been doing startups, you know, ever since, except for a, a stint um, at Babson getting my MBA. Cool, cool. So what's your... What I guess is your like ideation process. How do you identify opportunities? Because I know that you know you've been involved in a variety of different types of business, like you know, blown away, which is which was you know Uber uh, for beauty, and then of course Phoenix, uh, which was you know a private wellness community, and now you have you know a drink company. Where does your kind of mind go? How do you how do you think about ideas? Sure. Well, I, I think of my career as it was truly just full of learning lessons. Um, You know, early on, before I went to business school, I was just like, everyone's talking about tech. Like I was at a commercial real estate finance startup. I knew nothing about what I was talking about. I could just sell. So I wanted to go get my MBA, but I wanted to focus on entrepreneurship. So naturally I went to the number one school for entrepreneurship, Babson. And this was, you know, post financial collapse. It was a little bit of a get out of jail free card, but with a ton of student debt and, you know, really honed in on tech and, you know, by, by the time I graduated in 2011, um, that was like the new cool thing. And I was chasing opportunities that were buzzy, that were in the news, right? Like my first company out of business school was like an evolved Groupon. So it was true yield management, but it wasn't like coupons. It was, you know, same day discounts, much like hotel tonight, but for, but for restaurants. So I called it reservation tonight. And it was just too evolved. It was too complex. And again, it was just too kind of on trend, like all the VCs had made their bets. Um, and then I did that, ironically, a couple different times, like blown away that you mentioned, right? That was that was an Uber for beauty, which was another huge trend in the early, you know, 2010s, right? Everyone was coming out with like, you know, there, there was Handy and there was Glam Squad and there was, you know, Uber for X, basically, right? So um, I had to kind of take it a step back and figure out what am I passionate about? I, I can't focus in on, you know, the next cool trend because by then it's almost too late, right? You're not setting a trend if you're jumping on it. And my first kind of passion was, was health and wellness. I, I kind of found new nutrition just played such a big role in getting back in shape post-business school. And so Phoenix was, um, you know, one-to-one nutrition coaching. And, um, you know, you're still relying on humans. So it wasn't a truly scalable 
you know, platform from that perspective. But I was just like, Hey, if people are spending hundreds of dollars on, on like soul cycle and equinox and God knows what, well, and it's, and it's 80% nutrition, then surely people will allocate some spend towards what's, what's really important. Um, and at about this, this same time, I, I had the opportunity to, to join a Bravo show called summer house and helped cast it. And, you know, I'm thinking like, Oh, this is perfect. Like what better audience than Bravo? Like it's a, it's the number one network among women, you know, and, and, I'm sure most women kind of care about what they look like, how they feel right. And, and health and wellness is such a big part of that, but it never really clicked. It, it, it just didn't translate to television. And it was me trying to get people to spend money on something that they weren't already spending on, which is, you know, you're basically trying to change consumer behavior. So when I thought about the next, you know, ideation process, I don't want to change consumer behavior. I still want it to be something I'm passionate about. And the opportunity to do a, a better for you kind of progressive adult beverage brand was just staring me in the face. Thanks to, to Bravo, we were getting sent all sorts of products from other suppliers. And the product placement opportunity was just massive on our show. And so by 2018, I just was like, you know what? I'm going to stop trying to make Phoenix happen. I'm going to stop trying to get people to spend 100 bucks a month on on nutrition coaching, even though I think it's a viable business and people should. And I just kind of went what was calling my name, you know, and I ran right to that, to that blinking light. Was, was part of the reason why just, you know, thinking about beverage uh, broadly was because, Hey, I have this unique opportunity, you know, being on summer house, you know, you know, creating summer house and where, you know, we go to the Hamptons and we're, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're partaking in, in, you know, alcoholic beverages on the weekends and, and what have you. And there's this kind of unique opportunity on, on, on the, on the distribution side that, um, Hey, we could actually build a brand here that kind of actually, you know, we can get distribution from the show and it could be great. And, you know, also, you know, I, um, I, you know, have a love for this space as well. Was there, was there kind of like pre- preconceived like notions on, 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 on your side in terms of like linking it with, with Summer House or that just so happened? Well, put it this way. When I signed my Bravo contract, the only person on Bravo that I could name was Bethany Frankel, right? Like she was known for being a part of the Real Housewives of New York franchise and she started Skinny Girl and she pumped and dumped that thing and had a nine digit exit in two years. So yeah, like that so possibility. It, it, so it was like, it, it was like at, at like the back of your mind. Okay. Yeah. I mean, half the reason I did the show is because having done startups most of my career, biggest challenge is how do you generate awareness? How do you generate exposure? And how do you translate that to, con, you know, a conversion, uh, you know, into customers? And so- you know, when I had the the nutrition app, I thought that was going to be the layup, but it wasn't. And I had to basically double down on myself, my own self-funding of my startups, um, because I had shelled out, you know, a good 100K to start Phoenix. And I was basically going to be doing the same thing to start Loverboy. And so, you know, when I look at the show, I, I viewed it as a platform to kind of act as a cheat code, eliminate you know, a traditional advertising and marketing budget, much like Bethany did and, and focus my money and my, my effort elsewhere. I wanted to create, you know, a great tasting product that didn't exist in the market. Um, 
hard seltzers had started to take off, but I thought they left something to be desired. It's basically tastes like bad LaCroix. <laughs> um, and, uh, and meanwhile, hard tea, um, was been growing, you know, over the years and was completely dominated like 95% share by one company twisted. And they made a product that hadn't evolved since 2001. And it's absolutely horrible for you. In fact, all these flavored malt beverages that are full of flavor, which hard seltzers are not, are all absolutely disgustingly horrible for you. So, I mean, I was just like, I got to do this. You know, I'd already been, I was already the beverage guy on the show. People looked at me, you know, within the house, within the cast as like, what are we drinking today, Kyle? Is it, is it rosé? Is it a margarita from your margarita machine? Are we drinking some 24 ounce twisteds and waking up with the gnarliest hangovers? Like you tell us. And then the audience was basically doing the same thing. What are you guys drinking? So by season three, I was just like, how do I, you know, kind of like attack this opportunity, you know, full steam ahead, not knowing anything about CPG and certainly not knowing anything about all the intricacies and red tape around alcohol. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's you're kind of like the resident bartender on the show, right? In terms of like, what are we drinking today? What are we doing? How can you even capitalize on that, right? How, how can you say, okay, you know what? Instead of drinking this other person's drink, I'm going to create my own drink. And I also appreciate how you went into YT, Y Seltzer, how you thought there was something there um, that, that still hadn't been explored yet. And since this is your first CPG business, right? And you didn't know much about CPG, like, how did you learn? How did you learn? How did you learn CPG? Oh, what was kind of that process? And how did you go from, you know, tasting to ideating on the flavor profile and like all that kind of stuff that goes into it? It was so daunting. You know, that expression, it's like what you, you don't know what you don't know. And then you hear entrepreneurs all the time say like, man, if I knew how, you know, challenging this was going to be or how crazy complicated this industry is, I probably wouldn't have the balls to do it in the first place. So ignorance is truly bliss when it comes to starting a company and you, you do have to kind of have that certain level of crazy to think that you can pull it off and alcohol. I mean, look, the internet has kind of torn down the barriers to traditional CPG, right? Like I think you've probably interviewed some people that have said just that, but alcohol, because of the way it's structured legally, you have this three tier system with, you know, um, the suppliers, the wholesalers and the retailers. So it wasn't as easy for startups to come in and truly kind of innovate and disrupt. So, you know, looking back, uh, I knew it was going to be challenging. I had no idea, you know, and, and and it took me a year to even just get something to, to a place where I could, I could launch it. And I know that doesn't sound like a ton of time, but um, mind you, the first three months was an absolute sprint. Cause I was like, we're filming season three by July 4th of 2018. I need samples in cans that somehow will resemble what the product looks like that I bring to market so people recognize it. Um, and I had to do it. It was actually more like 10 weeks. So I went from knowing nothing about CPG to formulating, going through a, a design process with my girlfriend and a, and a creative agency um, and finding a formulator and finding a way to get samples in cans and not get arrested because it's alcohol. And I did that in the span of about 10 to 12 weeks. And it was absolutely freaking insane. But if I didn't do that, then I have to wait a whole entire year to film like the making of the brand 
if we got another season. And by the way, when I decided to do all this and put my money where my mouth is, I didn't even know if we were going to be able to film a season three. You don't know if you're going to be coming back until like a month before the cameras roll. I, I had to believe in the concept so with so much conviction that it could be launched without the show. But if it could be launched on the show, then obviously that would be my cheat code. Yeah. I mean, and I'd imagine you're just kind of trying to produce as much product that can really just survive you those kind of like summer weekends, right? Because you just want kind of that product placement on on the show and obviously to promote like like the kind of lifestyle that it that it portrays. But I since you had such since you were in like such a sprint, right? Um to to kind of get that product to you know, to be consumed on the show, right? And 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 to kind of survive those weeks. What what did the first iteration of product like taste like? Like like was it all good and gravy, or like was the first product just like not taste great because you know you were in, you were in like such a sprint and you just wanted like that kind of product placement? Look, some of my cast claim that that one of the samples I brought to the house made everyone like poop their pants. <laughs> uh, I was like, you guys are gonna ruin my business before it even gets off, um, <laughs> gets off the ground. So. It was a crazy sprint and it, it quite frankly, it, it wasn't until after we got it on camera that I then had to go back to the drawing board to really understand this industry and seek out the appropriate partners. But believe it or not, the original branding, I, I, I have a can right here. Um, I don't know if we can see this, but like that's the original. And then this is where we, I mean, different color, different skew, but it was really... I mean, I got to give kudos to my girlfriend, who's now my wife. We got married on the show. Um, you know, we nailed it that first um, iteration on the design front. Um, and then the flavor, I mean, it tasted amazing. Um, and it, it had more flavor than the, than the average hard seltzer. We were using better quality ingredients. People just immediately understood the value proposition. It's like, oh, wait, I can have flavor, but, but none of the guilt right? Like this is amazing. This is a first. And then I had to go back to the drawing board and it took a full year until we could kind of soft launch in New York city by, uh, by, I think it was like July of 2019. And again, we did that on camera. So after the season kind of concludes and, um, and of course, like this is the first time anyone had seen lover boy. It was, you know, kind of all throughout, you know, that, that, that summer, um, on, on Bravo and everything like, what was then like the reaction? And I know that it, you kind of then needed a year to really like soft launch because you actually needed to, you know, I'd imagine get your, um, uh, get some. Yeah, first it was like traumatizing because I thought I was going to be able to like wrap filming Labor Day weekend of 2018. By the time we air in like Q1 of 19, I'd have products in stores, you know, in multiple markets and, you know, people were actually going to be able to like go out and find the product. Well, none of that happened, right? Like it was just way more complicated, way more challenging. I was figuring out how to import the alcohol base from the Netherlands. And I had to like literally fill out like all the, um, the necessary paperwork to bring it in through customs. It, it, it was just nuts because I was hyper-focused on quality and nothing in the States in 2018 existed that was clean and pure like a vodka, but taxed and distributed as a beer. Um, all those hard seltzers back in the day actually tasted worse than they do now. So, um, you know, it airs, no one can buy it, but the excitement was there. Like we 
we started an Instagram account. And within a couple of weeks, I had 20 times more followers on Loverboy than I had my nutrition app, which had been in the wild for like two years. I was like, okay, well, I'm on to something. Now I just need to like actually get this thing to market. So talk to me a little bit about how you were able to get it to market. What um, did you did you think about wholesale retail first or, 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 or were you more thinking about um, selling online? Um, what, how are you thinking about your, your channels? To be honest, so, you know, the only thing you can sell online as an alcohol supplier is wine or wine-based product. This was going to be taxed and distributed as a beer, like most hard seltzers, even though we're a hard tea. And um, I knew that that was going to be complicated, but I knew nothing about it. Like I knew nothing about wholesale retail. I was very much product focused first, right? I wanted to create something that me and my friends wanted to drink. And then I'd hope everything else that would fall in place. So it was very much product first, which I feel like, you know, it's brand, it's product, you know, those, those things have to exist before you start figuring out the intricacies of wholesale and retail. And then, you know, once we soft launch here in New York, we had to make the decision, do we expand with beer wholesalers? And there's thousands, you need literally hundreds to cover the country. AB has over 500 independent wholesalers. So when they launch a product, they need the participation and coordination of 500 independent wholesalers to pull that off, which is nuts versus wine and spirits where you don't get as much attention from the sales teams, but you only need a couple relationships to go nationwide. Like Southern Glazers is in like 46 States. So that was a big part of what slowed our, our launch and expansion down just deliberating between, all right, do we go with the beer wholesaler network, even though it's going to take more time and literally hundreds of relationships or go with wine and spirits, go far and wide fast and capitalize on our nationwide awareness thanks to the show. And for better or worse, we went with the beer wholesaler network because long-term, that's the no-brainer. There's no better beverage distributor that goes deep in every single market and calls on every single account multiple times a week than a beer wholesaler. And again, these are things I didn't know when I started, but I had to spend a lot of time trying to figure it out. And then you realize, because again, I'm in, I'm in the Northeast where there's still independent mom and pop liquor stores. You realize that most of the country buys their booze from chains and chains, um, unlike non-alc, you can't just pay for placements by, by the way of slotting fees. You have to earn your distribution um, and your and your shelf you know, placements. And so um, that took on a whole new other expansion effort because uh, if we got a chain interested, it's not like I can just drop ship this stuff like any other CPG startup. If, if Whole Foods says, let's go, you need a distributor for every single store. And sometimes, you know, uh, that requires dozens or hundreds of, of distributors if you're with a beer wholesaler network. Yeah, no, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of my conversation with Amy from Beatbox Beverage. If, if, if you're familiar with with them and their brand. Yeah, I know Amy. They're they're crushing it. I actually listened to the to the episode. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. How they how they changed from going from like a wine and spirits um uh distribution when they were originally in um selling beatbox in boxes and then they actually went went to uh Tetra Packs and then going to RTD and like and they had to go the whole beer wholesale around. That's been like a huge unlock for their business, which I think is pretty cool. And what's daunting though, so they're obviously a wine-based product. 
there's less regulation around wine-based and spirit-based products. Um, in beer, we have what's called franchise loss. So you might partner up with one beer wholesaler and you realize they're not a good fit and you want to go partner with their competitor and that beer wholesaler might just say, nope. And then you're, you're literally stuck for life. Like most states have what's called beer franchise laws and it makes it incredibly challenging to move the brand if you make a wrong decision. So I, I knew that because the COO that, that joined me had his own um, craft beer um, you know, brewery and he quickly familiarized me with beer franchise law. So the beatbox guys could easily switch. I wouldn't be able to. So I had to kind of make a final decision very early on in, in, our, uh, in our lifespan. Wow. That's that's really interesting and and a, a nuance that we haven't really talked about talked about yet on this show. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it's prohibition era. Yeah, it's prohibition era. You know, you know, old old boys club rules that basically make the beer industry incredibly profitable for wholesalers. Yeah, it's um, one investor who invests. Um, he's been on the show and invests in a lot of beer alcohol um uh, uh products was saying now like w- when it comes to distribution it, it's like de- dealing with the mob like because everything is so old school and there's always you know it's it, it's that three-tier system that's um that's designed uh uh, uh for you know certain parts of that three-tier system to be profitable and there's kind of nothing you can really do about it or or changing it so yeah well the irony is back in the day that you know there's thousands of these wholesalers right and there was only like 30 to 40 beer suppliers. So the beer suppliers had all the power. So some of these laws date back to, you know, almost trying to swing the pendulum closer towards the wholesaler so they couldn't get screwed. But now, I mean, now there's 10,000 breweries. So it's, it's swung the opposite direction. It's a wild industry. Everybody that has an idea for like, oh my God, I do, I want to do like a, a vodka lemonade, like, I'm like, good luck. It is, it does not get more complicated. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the narrative and, you know, having to, when you're talking with retailers and trying to get product in store and kind of this narrative of, Hey, I'm, I'm on this show. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of eyeballs on this product, lover boy. Like how, how do you describe how you're able to convince, you know, distributors, retailers to actually hold your product and, um, and the overall, I guess, um, story that you kind of told them with lover boy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're, there's nothing new in like some D-list celebrity being attached to a an alcohol brand, right? I feel like every rock star and 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 actor has a tequila these days. But what we really leveraged was, you know, and this is not a shot at any one of those. I mean, their 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 time and energy is spent, you know, entertaining people. I'm an entrepreneur, and I've built this brand, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I just so happened to be on TV. That was an accident. I didn't go get my MBA thinking, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get drunk on Bravo. Um, <laughs> but I've learned that you don't get anywhere in life saying no. So I say yes. And sometimes it takes me down weird, weird paths. But, um, you know, when, when I went to these retailers, I said, listen, um, more so than my D-list, you know, fame and, and my, you know, 400,000 followers, is the authenticity that our brand has that 99% of alcohol brands wish they have. And it's the one thing they can't buy. You can't buy authenticity. I know that's a word 
that is so overused, um, particularly in CPG, but there's not a lot of authenticity in alcohol because the big guys still control, you know, I don't know, 95% of the market share. And there's no story behind these brands, right? Like what's the story behind Truly and White Claw and Grey Goose and Budweiser? I mean, who knows? And, and, and the millennial Gen Z consumer does not care about these brands. They want to buy into something. And so that's very much what my conversation is about. I was like, listen, the people that watch my show, they feel like they know me. They've been on this journey. They're dying to try it. And the fact that it tastes amazing and we have incredibly high repeat purchases is what brings them back, right? And so we check all the boxes for our beer wholesalers because we're bringing in a higher quality consumer that tends to be female, which they've struggled to cater to um, as beer guys. And then on the, on the retail front, um, it's like, look, we have a product that can be distributed in four times as many locations in the U.S. than wine and spirits. Because one advantage beer does have is the ability to sell more places. And so I said, listen, we got a high margin product with four times the penetration possibilities. Um, you know, and in XYZ retailer, you know, let's give them something that they that they want to buy in your store and not have to go to the liquor store for like a wine and spirit purchase to make their, you know, mimosa or margarita or whatever, right? Like we can convert them right then and there in the grocery store. And it's really resonant. The, the challenge though is alcohol, it's very much a chicken and the egg. The, the, the retailers that get excited, they, they ask you, which wholesalers have you already signed? Not who you hope to partner with, but who have you already signed? Because those, that's the only way I'll give you those stores. And then on the flip side, the distributors don't want to bring on a brand until you have retail mandates. And when I say mandate, I mean guaranteed spots on the shelf and in the cooler um, called a planogram. So um, it's, it's very much walking this. It's, it's a dance between, you know, uh, wholesale and retail and just trying to sell, sell them both kind of uh, at the same time um, and, and hoping your, your story resonates. Once you were able to get into a few stores and their attraction, their repeat rates, they were kind of going up and you, and you had, you know, maybe great, or I hope great, great velocities that got into more stores, stores. What was then kind of your approach? Was it to kind of scale nationally as quickly as possible? Was it really to focus on, I'd imagine the New York market and really try to maybe own that market or have, or, or, or really get kind of inch wide foot, uh, foot deep in there and then expand what were overall, how, how are you thinking about it from, from that standpoint? No, great question. So we launched, um, in January of 20, I mean, we'd soft launched New York city, like a couple months prior, but we launched uh, of all States, Wisconsin, that happened to be where we moved production. And then I partnered up with a great wholesaler there. We had, um, quasi distribution, in, in New York, in New York City. Um, and then we partnered with another small distributor in Massachusetts. And, you know, obviously the pandemic hit a couple months later, but it didn't matter. It actually helped us. We would have been focused on, you know, throwing parties at, you know, Tau, but um, things just started to take off. And um, the momentum picked up like a hockey stick. And our velocities, this is, by the way, this is the same year that Bud Light Seltzer and Corona Seltzer launched with a collective $140 million advertising budget. We're fighting for the same shelf space, fighting for the same space on the floor. 
And in those three markets, we outpaced both those brands by a long shot. And next thing you know, people were hearing about it, right? Like this is a small industry, particularly among beer wholesalers. And next thing you know, my inbox was flooded. So we basically, you know, then we, we ran into the supply chain challenges that a lot of people <laughs> experience with, with COVID. Um, but the, the strategy, to your point, shifted. We had proved out, you know, the, the, we had proof of concept in three very different markets. Um, we had incredible velocities. We had incredible repeats. And we were solving that chicken and the egg because um, both wholesalers and retailers came knocking. And in fact, the guy that buys more beer and more hard seltzer than anybody in the country um, at one of the biggest grocery store chains, I won't list them by name because I did that one podcast and he yelled at me, but um, he he inbounded us and we missed his email. We were so inundated and we were so stretched thin because I had like five employees. We didn't even do a, a capital raise um, that we were not even in a position to capitalize on all the buzz that we were generating. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the strategy shifted towards, you know, outside of the, the Northeast where we launched multiple markets. All right. We knew chains were a, a, a necessity. They're, they're a big part, if not the vast majority part of the revenue and the volume. Um, well, we had a lot of their interest and the chains that we didn't peak their interest, we would go get distribution and then, you know, pitch them. Um, so yeah, it was a mad dash. You know, I went from three distributors to we're at about 170 over the course of essentially two and a half years. Uh, you know, spent a million plus dollars on those distribution agreement negotiations alone. I mean, it was just an insane uh, undertaking. Um, but look, most brands that partner with beer wholesalers and build this out, usually it usually takes decades. And we'll hopefully be nationwide by the end of this year. So we did it in three. That's incredible. That's amazing. That's amazing. What is it? I I, I remember you saying that at that point, you didn't raise outside capital. Um, when you did raise outside capital, what was that process like? How, how did you think about what type of investors you actually want on your cap table and, and being part of your business? Yeah. So just to take a step back, I, you know, I self-funded the first year or you know, 15 or so months of, of operations. Um, I brought on a COO, I gave him a salary, uh, you know, before I gave one to myself. And, um, you know, when things started to take off, like I said, in 20, um, I mean, we went from zero to like 6 million that first year and we were handicapped by production. We probably would have done 15 million that first year, just based on the POs we were getting from, from distributors. And so we were profitable out of the gate. We're still profitable today. And so my little friends and family round that I did, and I say little, I mean, I was very fortunate to raise over $1.2 million in um, heading into our soft launch of 2019. Um, we, you know, we were profitable and all the VCs that kind of came knocking, I was like, hey, like, I don't think now is the time because we can't even produce enough of this stuff, right? Like we're, we're laser focused on, on execution. And let's face it, fundraising is a full-time job. So we were laser focused on just getting product to market. And by the time I picked my head up, it was actually fall of 2021. 20, uh, 
And we started having conversations with all the typical, you know, early stage CPG investors. And we realized that we zoomed past their sweet spot. I'm like, you know, 18 months earlier, you know, you're talking to like a ZX venture and they're like, oh, come back when you've done a couple million in sales. I did 2 million in one month in, in 2021. So we zoom past the sweet spot for a lot of these early stage, you know, seed and, and series A investors. And that actually being in this weird in-between zone of like venture capital and private equity, it actually wound up causing me to spin my wheels for, for like a year. Cause I'm like, if we raise, I want to raise from the right partners. I want to make sure they understand our business. Most VCs don't understand alcohol or some can't even invest in it. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time educating very savvy, sophisticated investors on what we're doing in alcohol. Cause, um, you know, most people don't quite understand it. And, um, and yeah, yeah. At one point I'm like, screw it. We raised, we actually took out an SBA loan cause we qualified cause we're profitable. So that held us over for some period of time. And then by April of 22, we closed a small check. We actually even haven't, haven't even publicly announced it because we actually still might raise more on those same terms. Um, you know, a, a pretty notable CPG um, uh, VC fund. And, um, you know, they just, they understood what we're doing. They've been following us for like 18 months. Even though we zoomed past their sweet spot, they kind of made some exceptions. And they, I think it was about a three and a half million dollar check. And then we were going to raise more. But then the macroeconomic environment caused everybody to second guess everything in summer of 2022. So we just went back to execution mode. We're like, let's not spin our wheels fundraising. Hey, the three and a half million still sitting in our bank account. We're still profitable. Um, so so it's, it's actually been a very unusual fundraising process because most CPG brands are like hemorrhaging cash right up into the point they hope to sell. <laughs> yeah, and it seemed like you're actually, you know, if an investor would be interested in investing in a, you know, alcohol beverage band, it seems like you're in a pretty good position. You, you, you have a lot of leverage, especially considering that you're, that you're profitable and that you've kind of zoomed past those kind of expectations um, given, given compared to how much you've actually raised and equity you still own in the company. Exactly. And that's, you know, that expression, like, you know, best time to raise money is when you don't need it. That's kind of what we did. You know, we had an opportunity to take in a small check, you know, um, and, and give us a little peace of mind. Um, you know, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate that, yeah, we don't have a, we, we don't have, we don't even have a marketing budget. So it's, we're very unconventional. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. How do you, how do you think about growth today? Um, and obviously we've, we, you mentioned how the, um, macroeconomic has changed, um, especially when it comes to fundraising. But how how has this affected your your growth? Are you trying to optimize optimize to be even more profitable, or are you trying to hey let's get more accounts and more accounts and and, and really try to get this kind of gross margin up? Yeah, no the the last three years have very much been like um, foundational years. You know, first it was getting our feet under ourselves and understanding what the hell we're doing. Then it was very much focused on supply chain because we couldn't make enough of the stuff. I, I literally imported 20 million cans from Kuala Lumpur and Shanghai just to meet demand. Um, I mean, it was quite the journey. Never thought I'd be, you know, waiting for ships off the coast of, you know, LA to kind of make or break my business. But that's, that's where we found ourselves in the peak of the pandemic. Um, you know, we, you know, at, at this point, 
um, you know, we're, we're basically thinking about growth um, as, as a way to kind of actually capitalize on, on what we built. So from our, you know, our supply chain challenges that we solved, we then focused on expansion. So for like the last two years, I've been focused on the least sexy side of the business, which is, you know, getting all those distribution agreements signed and inked and delivered. And now we built up, now we're building up our sales team. We just made two senior hires to really kind of throw gas in the fire. So um, if we are able to fill our retail mandates alone this year, we should quadruple our sales. But that requires us to kind of um, corral all of our wholesalers, you know, and, and manage them effectively, which is really challenging, right? Like you have, you have companies that, you know, have hundreds of people managing their distribution network. So right now, the growth is going to come down to execution, you know, kind of capitalizing on all of the kind of, uh, you know, the, the hard work that we put in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. How how else do you think about growth when it comes to expanding new SKUs? Um, what do you think about like new categories that you that you either are in or or want to be in? Yeah, I mean the fun thing about alcohol is like it's super fun to innovate. It's like the social lubricant of of society, and um, it it also I mean forget the TV show the 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 word of mouth benefits of of alcohol brands um is is just incredible right like there's probably no better category to benefit from word of mouth we we try to set trends you know we were really the first to do a light refreshing um you know zero sugar hard tea um as opposed to the diabetes in a bottle that the twisted's putting out there hopefully they don't listen to this and sue me but um you know, we, we, we try to put things in cans that, that we want, right? So when we, we found ourselves drinking Aperol spritzes at restaurant, I do a little I do a little homework and lo and behold, there's tons of sugar in Aperol. So then the question is, what can we do that satisfies that like light, refreshing, but fuller flavor cocktail that people are gravitating towards now that's still like low in ABV and all that good stuff. So we launched our spritz line. We actually launched that direct to consumer to capitalize on our awareness capitalize on the fact that it's a wine-based product and kind of be a stopgap for like, Hey, thank you for being a fan of the brand. We will get our teas to you through the traditional three tier system. But for now you can buy these spritz products. And so part of some of our innovation was not only capitalizing and setting trends, but was, um, you know, trying to build like this omni-channel business where we could get product to people um, that was going to take a couple years due to the complexities of beer distribution. So some of it is, you know, um, I wish I could say I, I anticipated the pandemic that would, but that would make me a pretty dark human being. We launched our direct to consumer spritz in April of 20. It was perfectly timed. So we've sold, you know, millions upon millions of, of direct to consumer ready to drink, you know, cocktails and spritzes with zero marketing budget. Um, and, and, you know, we launched the spritz line and then we launched the, uh, the cocktail line, the martini line. So we, we started, I noticed our kind of purchasing behavior when we're out with friends, oftentimes on camera, we went from ordering Aperol spritzes to espresso martinis. And, you know, at that time, most of the world in the country had not heard or tried an espresso martini, but it was like our go-to drink. So I was like, we got to put this in a can. How the hell do we do this? You know, and 38 iterations later, you know, out comes the very first, you know, espresso martini in a can. And then we did the same thing for Cosmo. Um, 
you know, so yeah, it's really just trying to fill voids, set trends, but also think about, hey, we, we want to be selling products where consumers want to buy. And not everybody, particularly in the pandemic, was going to the store. First of all, you know, obviously timing couldn't have been better, even though that wasn't the plan. But the, I think what's also interesting too, is this idea of testing products on the DC channel, because then you can actually see, um, yes, you're obviously rewarding customers by, you know, the ones that are actually visiting your site and actually you already have that relationship with. But secondly, the, it, it can then serve as kind of proof points to retail, you know, Hey, Hey, hey retailers, I know that they, this is our hot product or our best selling product. But we have this new one that's actually selling pretty well on our website. Why don't we try it in stores for and, and do like a limited run and see um, and and see how it sells? But it's selling pretty well instead of, hey, we want to launch a new product in your store that is not proven whatsoever, but we think it, it, it could be big, right? Trust us. Yeah, trust us. Trust us. Exactly. Exactly. So no, no, you, no, that's really you cool. nailed it. I mean, you hear a lot of cpg startups doing just that they you know use dtc to 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 kind of innovate test the waters gain traction you know provide proof of concept and then you you get all that data it's it's actually even more important in alcohol right because like if you have a proof of concept and you go to whole foods and you're just like a non-alc you know tea they could say love it let's go drop ship this and we'll hub and spoke it and we'll be in every single whole foods can't do that in alcohol so the need to have buy-in from wholesale and retail is essential. And what better way to facilitate the, that conversation when I come to them and say, I already have tens of thousands of customers. I own all that data. I have a direct relationship with them, right? Like that's not something most alcohol, shit, 99% of alcohol suppliers can say. They have zero direct relationship with their consumer because of the three-tier system. So it gave us a huge leg up, you know, when... When, when wholesalers and retailers were like, all right, we see what you're doing online. When can we get, you know, the espresso martini and the spritz and the cocktails in store? And, and, you know, that was actually a big undertaking last year. We started that whole process. I mean, also too, like, yes, you have a direct relationship with your customers, but you also know where your customers live. And what that means is that if, if you have, you know, a quite a large segment in a particular region or something, then you can go to that region if you're in it and say, Hey, Actually, a large subset, you know, many of our customers love this product and they're located, you know, in your region. So I think that you should start selling it too. So you could also capitalize it from from that standpoint as well. No, absolutely. I mean, and again, most wholesalers and retailers were not used to that type of sales pitch because of alcohol being like stuck in the, you know, the stone ages. Um, You know, I I could go to a wholesaler like, I I just don't know if this is going to work here. I don't think anybody watches Bravo, you know, whatever excuse they'd want to give me. And then I call up, um, you know, my team and like, get me all the data, you know, for, for Santa Barbara. And then I go in, I'm like, if you don't take our brand, you're literally already leaving money on the table on day one. And here's why. And literally sometimes their minds would be blown. They're like, I don't even understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, and, and, and from your standpoint too, like you could then, you know, obviously do like email retargeting and be for all the, all the people in Santa Barbara and be like, Hey, like now we're available in your stores. Like, you know, and so you can kind of drive them out there. What has it. Right. We've been collecting emails for years, you know, and we have, we probably have more people on our email distribution list than like Budweiser, right? Like who, who subscribes to Budweiser? Exactly. Well, 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 and probably, 
probably even more importantly, it's people that are actually more engaged, right? It's not only about like, like list size, but actually people that actually are more, are more engaged with it. What was it like as well, founding a business with your, with Amanda, your girlfriend at the time, and now your wife? Was that, was that difficult? Was that, um, was like, how's that, how's that been? Yeah. So early on, it was like, it was me and only me, right? I was, um, I had to be the one that cut the checks. I had to be the one to walk away from my other startup. You know, I had to be a hundred ten percent all in. She was still working another job, um, despite being on Bravo. Uh, she's probably the, one of the only people to go multiple years actually working a corporate job while filming a reality show. So I'm really proud of her for for accomplishing what she did. And um, when when I convinced her to jump ship, uh, I think it was season four, and um, that was summer of nineteen. And and yeah, it was a big it was a big step. You know, we, um, I think everybody knows that, yeah, working with your friends and your family is a, a sure way to complicate um, the inner workings of a business and a startup. But for us, it, it just, there was like no other way. I was just like, you're our creative director. You are the creative voice behind the brand. Um, you know, let's try to find a way to make this work. And, um, you know, not only did Amanda join me, but but my best friend, who's also on the show, joined. I mean, Carl uh, was like basically our, our first sales rep. And, um, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a wild ride, right? Like, it, it's not easy. Like, but having people, that, you know, that, that you care about surround you, you know, when there's something to celebrate and high five and kind of pick you up when, when you're down in the dumps is, is critical, um, particularly in the pandemic, Right, like we were basically just confined to our New York City apartment, going through the the throes of of running a beverage startup in, in lockdown. Yeah, I mean, I I can only imagine, but um, it's I think it's also you know really cool how you're able to kind of share those moments too with um. It ain't easy. Uh, with your, <laughs> yeah, it ain't easy. It ain't easy. It ain't easy. No, no, for sure. In terms of like alcohol drinks trends in the next you know three to five years, and maybe taking like you know, a drink that maybe was really popular in bars and then put like an RTD spin on those drinks, which ones are you kind of eyeing or, or paying attention to currently? I mean, we, we currently have uh, eight different sparkling hard teas. We have three spritzes, two cocktails. We have two more spritzes coming down the pipe and probably a couple different cocktails. So we already have quite a bit of, uh, of, of optionality within our portfolio. But again, I try to pay close attention to what, I mean, we live in New York. Um, there's no better nightlife than, than New York City in the world. So a lot of the trends, you know, the Cosmo, the Espresso Martini, I mean, you probably would be hard pressed to find a spot that, you know, outpaced New York for, you know, um, being where these trends are being set in the first place. So I'm just trying to be constantly observing what, what people are consuming. You know, I think that the day of like, it's either a beer, wine, and spirit is over, right? So there's a blurring of the lines. This fourth category has emerged. I like to think of it as better for you, but you have lots of ready to drink cocktails that are not good for you, right? So, uh, you know, for me, I look, to, I look at what's popular if I were to ever do something where I'm not setting a trend, I'd be like, how can I make that taste better without all the calories and carbs and sugar? Right. So that's a source of innovation for me because 
99% of products within alcohol still don't even have a nutrition label or the ingredients listed. And trust me, that's with good reason. A lot of lobbying power. Uh, it's not just like, oh, it's, a, it's not a coincidence, right? That vodka, that tequila, guess what? It's not pure. Uh, I don't care what they're saying on the label. Um, you want to look for stuff that has no additives and whatnot, but like even like your favorite red cab has a bunch of sugar in it, even though it's labeled as like a dry red. So we look for better for you trends that we can kind of put our own lover boy spin on things. Um, or we try to set a trend altogether. Right. So, um, it's kind of a mixed bag. No, that's, um, no, I, I appreciate you, you, uh, you, you mentioning that. And it, and it seems like in terms of excuse or, or I guess product, product diversification, you're in a pretty good position currently. And so maybe you're not, you aren't looking right now to add, to add a new line, but, um, that's cool. Well, we'll, we'll innovate. Like we'll, we'll still do stuff. We'll do some direct to direct to consumer drops just to kind of keep that, that fun spark alive. And then you, you never know when you're going to have a hit on your hands. Right. So, um, you know, yes, we're focused on taking what we've already got and, 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 and executing and making sure that, all right, if there is a slower moving skew, then, you know, maybe it, maybe it is on the chopping block. Um, but then, you know, that, that DTC channel can kind of be our little lab, if you will, to kind of keep things fun and fresh. Cool. Cool. No, that's, uh, no, that's makes a lot of sense. What's, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? So I knew you were going to ask that. And I was thinking about it. And it was a no brainer on, on both fronts. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever said either one of these two, two um, titles, but on the professional side, The Challenger Sale. Um, I read that book uh, going into a job interview. It was like my one little stint where I wasn't working for myself. I was going to help run enterprise sales as ZocDoc. I never sold anything in the healthcare space, never sold you know, B2B enterprise. And I just needed to reset how I think about my, my selling strategy, if you will. The challenger sales are every entrepreneur or anybody in business for that matter should read this book because I don't care what you're doing. You got to sell something to somebody. And the challenger sale flips the traditional, you know, mindset that solution selling is, is the key and really flips it on its head. And, you know, you basically have to challenge your prospective customer and really kind of challenge their thinking and challenge the status quo to give them that epiphany aha moment where they realize, oh my God, I got to buy Loverboy. It solves all my problems. So the challenger sale, I could not recommend it enough. I made my whole entire sales team read it. Um, you know, it's an incredibly uh, powerful book. You are very original, Kyle. No one's, no one's mentioned the challenger sale. So you, you're, you're very, very original, very original. Yeah. It is the best selling book out there. Not that I've read a lot of them because I'm like, this is the one. I don't need to read any other one. Um, on the personal side, I think we were like in the thick of COVID. And I I, uh, I got my hands on David Goggins' um, Can't Hurt Me. Yeah. I'm sure pe- some people have, have mentioned that one before. I think that you're actually again pretty pretty original. I don't think that I don't think that we've had another person um, bring up "Can't Hurt Me," but it's a great one. I've never been more inspired in my entire life, and this was I started listening to this when I was trying to get into a running routine because we couldn't go into the gyms, and I'm trying to stay in shape and I'm going crazy in my New York City apartment. And I started listening to his book. I think I crushed it in like four days, and I listened to it while running. And you basically are like. 
oh my God, I am a little bitch. Like no excuses. Like it, it, it is like a game changing book in terms of like really kind of digging down deep and, and figuring out what kind of person you really are. Um, so both of those books were pretty game changing for me. You should read the text message um, uh, that David sent to Joe Rogan on Joe Rogan's birthday. Um, Joe Rogan like reads it aloud um, on his on his podcast. If you search it, like like David Goggins text message to Joe Rogan on his birthday, like it's pretty pretty crazy, pretty crazy. I actually but recommend yeah. the, the the I recommend reading "Can't Hurt Me" via the audio book because first of all, David Goggins' voice is absolutely insane. He's not the narrator. But the reason why it's so incredible, the, the guy that helped him write the book is actually the one reading it. But then after each chapter, they do this debrief that you don't get if you read the physical oh, book. Okay. So you kind of get like Goggins like reaction or perspective to the chapter. And he gives you some color on it that you don't get if you just read the print. And then you hear it's just like amazing to hear them kind of go back and forth. Cool. 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 I'll, I'll definitely check out the audiobook then. Um, that's that's awesome. Um this is this is great kyle this has been so much fun thanks thanks so much for your time thank you mike so much fun thank you so much cheers buddy and there you have it it was such a pleasure chatting with kyle i hope you all enjoyed it if you're enjoying the show highly recommend subscribing to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox as well as a weekly recap of all consumer deals thanks have a good one